Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Dear Philippa, and today's theme is Agony Arms. But before we get into today's episode, it was so exciting to be picked by Miranda Sawyer to be reviewed in The Observer this past weekend. Um, If you haven't read it, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Basically, uh, she said, I'm warm, I'm charming. She did also say I talk too much about myself, so I'm going to be keeping any narcissistic tendencies very much in check from now onwards. But it was overall a lovely review. So thank you, Miranda. And uh, we've got lots of lovely new listeners because of it. So if you're a new listener, if you're a long and loyal listener, whoever you are, whatever you are here, we couldn't be happier that you are. We promise you'll be glad that you came and you've joined us in time in a couple of weeks to be celebrating our 100th Namaste motherfucking episode, can you believe? So there are lots of treats in store for that one. But back to today, which is the origins of Agony Arts. In 1691, a man called John Dunton was having an affair and there was no one he could ask for anonymous advice. Realising that his dilemma could not be unique, he launched the Athenian Gazette and opened its pages to readers and so the first Agony Aunt column was born. It proved so popular that Dunton had to hire writers of both sexes to help him with it, and one of them was a certain Daniel Defoe, who in 1704 started up the review and became its agony uncle. John Dunton didn't tend to mince his words. He once advised a woman, fearing a lonely old age, aren't we all, to get herself down to the docks when the fleet was in and grab yourself a sex-starved sailor. What could be simpler than that? Nice glasses. These are my nice glasses, but I'd have to hold them up like that to see you. That's today's guest, Philippa Perry. 1950s agony aunt Peggy Makins remembers not being able to mention the word bottom, even to refer to the bottom of the garden, when she was writing for Woman magazine. But as the decades rolled by, nothing was off limits. And after the sexual revolution of the 1960s, writers such as Marge Proops led the way by talking with a newfound directness about sex. And if we fast track forward to the present day, here are a couple of headlines from recent broadsheet agony aunt columns that I found. None of them are Philippa's, I might add. Here we go. My transgender brother is furious over my choice of baby name. My Remainer husband is refusing to get a new passport. My lefty wife is condescending and annoying. But none of those are as good as one from the 19th century, which was never kiss a man in a canoe. To make our things so I'm small and you're big. Okay. After volunteering with the Samaritans, Philippa Perry trained as a psychotherapist. She worked in the mental health field for several years before writing her graphic novel, Couch Fiction, which lays bare the process of psychotherapy, followed by a second book, How to Stay Sane. 
She has an Agony Aunt column in The Observer magazine and has presented several documentaries for the BBC. She's also appeared as an expert on Celebs Go Dating for E4, which is definitely one of my guilty pleasures. I love that show. Her latest book, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did... And by the way, listen out for that title, because you'll hear in the episode, I struggle a bit with it once we get into the meat and potatoes of things. So here it is. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did was published in 2019 to critical acclaim and was a number one Sunday Times bestseller. Philippa went on to capture the nation's hearts in Grayson's Art Club during lockdown, where she and Grayson curated artwork that chronicled the changing moods of Britain. Philippa and I talked about agony aunts, attachment styles, sex, love, marriage, blended families, significant others, Grayson's Art Club, parenting, dogs, cats, and the joy of teenagers. Really the joy. But I started by asking her about what it's like having an agony aunt column in The Observer. enjoy it and what I like to do is go through the inbox and I always want to pick the one where an answer doesn't immediately occur to me Um, because if I have to think about it then it's going to be I think more interesting for other people to think about it I think the skill is in choosing the questions and if I don't get great letters in I'm stomped, but I usually do get quite good letters. So the other I... thing that happens, if I do, if I do one say, help, I'm 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 14, I don't know whether I want to have kids or not, or something like that. The next week, and I open my inbox, it's just full of people going, help, I'm 14, I don't know if I want to have kids <laughs> or not. Thought, I've done that one. <laughs> I guess people don't see the nuance as well, because you do cover many things within your articles one thing that I'm going to actually read out um because it's only little but I didn't have to put it on my phone before I interviewed you because it's been on my phone ever since I read it and it meant an enormous amount to me when I'd had a very painful breakup and I was trying to sort of unpick what had gone wrong and should I be out of this relationship where we still very much loved each other, but it just hadn't worked. And it was this, what sustains a marriage isn't regular terrific sex. It is honoring bids for attention. What I mean by this is that when one of you makes a remark, it need not be about sex. It could be as mundane as a comment about the cat or otherwise seems to be asking for a response that reaching out the bid is responded to, or in other words, honored. Research has shown that when seven out of 10 bids in a marriage are honoured on both sides, the marriage will do well. And obviously by marriage, you might mean relationship where where people aren't married, but I found that revelatory. So tell me about that. Well, that is research done by the Gottman Institute in America. And what he did, he got... um, 500 couples and uh, they had a sort of weekend retreat that was rigged up with cameras and they observed couples and they that he has he he breaks couples down into oh my god he has funny words for it like a masters and disasters so masters is a little bit of a sexist uh, 
um, a name for a couple, but there you go. Masters are the people that uh, enjoy being with each other, don't have big dramas, get along, love each other. And the disasters are people that are sort of like missing and conflicting. And they're all, he's, the other way he, he does masters and disasters is that he asks couples to have an argument in front of him when they're all wired up. And the masters are quite cool about it. And they're just sort of exchanging information about why they're not going to get a dog or whatever the argument's about. But the disasters, their cortisol levels and their heart rates sort of go through the roof. So they're in a sort of emergency mode the whole time, which is not really sustainable for everyday life and a, and a decent um, couplehood. Um, so he observed different types of couples in this weekend retreat sort of thing. And after after about five hours, you forget you've been watched and you just get on with it. And those that, you know, could calmly sort out arguments, who got on really well, who enjoyed each other. If one was reading and the other one went, look, squirrel, out of the window, um, the reading one would, wouldn't say, I'm reading or ignore it. They'd go, oh, yeah, and then go back to the book. Because look, squirrel is it's a bid for attention. And does it, but that that was such a, because it's all about human connection, isn't it? I guess everything that yeah. ties together your work as a therapist, as an artist, your book, your columns, it's the, it, that's all there really is at the end of the day, isn't there, is how we connect with other humans. And I found that such yeah. a powerful way of of describing how that might be, I guess, not just in regard to intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, there are people who go, I'm fine on my own. I don't need to connect with anyone. Um, and they usually have what we call an avoidant um, bonding attachment pattern. So if you're avoidant, you have learned very on in life that other people aren't reliable so you become self-reliant and that gets ingrained and gets to be a bit of a habit and so um you've sort of convinced yourself you don't need to connect and you don't need other people but then if you're like that you'll probably connect via things like ideas like books so you're still connecting but you're sort of one re removed so you've sort of got a handle on it i'm not saying those people are bad or anything sure. it's just the way they've been brought up and it's, it's, it's the opposite the anxious attacher so you're an avoidant or is there something between being an avoidant attacher and an anxious attacher yeah, I sometimes yeah, think I'm, I can be both the, there's the secure <laughs> attached one in the middle okay that's what so I'm going to aspire to when I grow up <laughs> yeah we're all aspiring to that one do people tend to attract the uh, I've had an endless capacity to attract avoidant attachers and the more avoidant they get the more anxious I get which I know is um it, it is a Such dance a lovely pattern people. that one it's Such just a lovely great. one five decades yeah, in get, I'm working get, on it you get an avoidant who actually likes sex so he sort of needs a girlfriend right and um so he gets a girlfriend and then uh he keeps scurrying away because in order to self-regulate he needs a lot of time on his own in order to sort of like feel calm and good. He, he, he needs time to recalibrate and sort of get back to himself. It's his way of self-soothing is to be on his own. Whereas the anxious attached, attached person, their way of self-soothing is to be reassured by the other. I'm doing a stroking motion as though I'm stroking a dog's head. They need to be reassured the whole time. 
And these two, for some reason, are attracted to each other. Um, and so they have a little merry dance of intimacy going on. But once you understand what's going on, you can take a bit of distance from it and not actually be emerged in it so much. And so you you can understand it's not that he doesn't love me. It's that he has to go into his cave for a little bit and uh, fiddle around mending a clock or something. And um, he'll be um, he'll be out, you know, in due course. And it's not to do with me. It's lovely to be able to park your kind of <laughs> fight or flight reaction long enough to think that, isn't it? But it's so hard when you're, it's breaking the habits of a lifetime, isn't it? I, yeah. I realise yeah. I have so much understanding. They say you teach what you most need to learn, don't they? And I can yeah. spout on at girlfriends about every type of theory about this. I get it yeah. all, but do I live it? Not so much. Well, you are you are very entitled to say what your needs are as well. Like, you know, I need my head patting uh, once every 40 minutes. So uh, could you come out of the uh, the den or where, wherever you are and pat me on the head? And do you, in, in terms of well, what you said about people who are avoidant attachers or may think they don't need those human connections, and I guess a part of that is avoiding themselves as well or could somebody massively be connected to themselves but still avoid external now, the trouble is if you're massively attracted <laughs> to yourself <laughs> is that you're a bit like a cat chasing their tail there's no checks and balances there's no one else checking your sense of reality so it's a bit bonkers making if you're only connecting with yourself i mean if you connect with other ideas and with the outside world in a different way, but if you're only inward looking, then we then we might be in trouble. And, and I'm actually quite worried about uh, people who have become socially phobic because of lockdown. They sort of found themselves a lot more comfortable when they didn't have to go to parties and things. And um, they, I mean, some people, of course, have to uh, because they're vulnerable you know they cannot get COVID. they can't afford to get covid because they haven't got an immune system or something you know fair enough they do have to carry on isolating but um if you don't have to if you haven't got you know special needs like that you don't need to carry on isolating a lot of people are choosing to carry on isolating and justifying it rather than say i think it's fine if you go no, actually, I don't like socialising. I'm not going to do it. That's kind of sane. But a lot of people are justifying uh, not going out, not seeing other people and becoming more insular. And there's a bit more chasing tales going on, a bit more people sounding a little bit mad because they, they haven't got the checks and balances of their friends and relations to go, are you sure you think that? You know, should we unpack that a bit? No one's doing that with them. And so if, if you know, I was left alone with my own sense of reality without other people to check in with, I'd be, I, I don't know how long I'd stay sane for before I started believing my delusions you end up in your sort of echo chamber don't you of uh, with confirmation bias confirmed by yourself if you're the if you're only involved in your own world and and you yeah. talked you've you've had quite a few um letters in about people being single the person who said they thought they might self-destruct because they're about to turn 40 which yeah. I loved because I'd never done stand-up till I was nearly 46 and I thought yeah. my life feels like it's just beginning and I'm nearly 54 so I, I think was, the I... thing that she was talking about <laughs> well rather skirting around that particular 
um, uh, going to say caller. That's not the right word. Writer inner. Yes. Um, Reacher was, outer. It was like closing the door on having children, which does happen mm -hmm. pretty swiftly after 40. And you have got children. So it's different. You've got a, a 25 year old son, haven't you? Yeah, gosh, well done. You've done your research. Yeah, 25 year old son and I a 22 year old daughter. Oh, did you? <laughs> uh, oh, yes. My thing about, yes, about younger men. Yes, my son's a bit, soon to be 26. Yeah. So a little yeah. bit younger because your daughter, Flo, is a little bit older than my son, I think. 31. 31. But I had not her so quite different. late. I had her, well, not that late. I had her at 35. Which nowadays is uh, is absolutely bang in the middle of when everyone's yeah, having is. kids. Because people have them at 45 now. I would have been too tired at 45 absolutely i even uh, i mean mine i have mine in my 20s and i look back at it i was fairly energetic i mean i couldn't my kids have a little brother who's nine who i see quite a bit and have obviously seen a lot since he was born and i yeah. love seeing him but it feels like a sort of fake grandparently relationship you you feel like your relationship with your nine-year-old son is like a fake he's not my son he's my kid's dad's son so oh, my kids have a brother I, I don't like calling him a half-brother because he is their brother I feel he's very okay, much yeah, is their yeah. brother oh, I see. but Sorry. he's not my son yeah okay I was a bit old lady there I've got it now you've um, got it now so and you have yeah. so what what do you call yourself to the the nine-year-old well it's funny because he knows I'm my kid's mum obviously and he yeah. knows that they've got the same dad and we're all very close I'm close to his mum and and still to my kid's dad we're very much yeah. a blended family and I take him we have sort of certain traditions I take him to Legoland at least once a year yeah. and we were there this year and we were sitting in some you know god-awful ride and he said it's funny isn't it because we really love each other and we're part of the same family but we're actually nothing to do with each other <laughs> Which I thought was a really... very mature nine-year-old. I could see the people on the right going, "Well, what are you doing with this child then?" So, I'm so but he, yeah, so he, you're just friends. You exactly. are friends. That's we are, aren't are. we? I'm his Isn't much older, older friend. He's also absolutely wonderful to me because I'm not his parent. So he behaves beautifully to me to a level yeah. my kids are like, "He's he's lovely, but he's not that well behaved with anyone else." It's because I'm just a step removed. It, what that is is that. With your parents, you're bonded, okay? It's like super glue. You can't escape from you. If you're nine, you cannot escape from your parents and they can't escape from you. So both the parents and the child can behave quite badly towards each other because they know they're never going to break. However, you are in a friend role. So if he plays up in Legoland, that's the end of lovely fun times to go to Legoland. You know, if you say, I'm a bit tired now, we'll have to stop and have a burger, he'll probably go, Okay, but if it was his real mum, he'd go, oh, mum. <laughs> Completely. And it must be very irritating for his actual uh, birth family to see the delightful, <laughs> unerringly polite, courteous, uh, compliant child that he is with me. But no, he's very, he's very, very sweet. And I absolutely love seeing him. And it gives me that sort of um, energy that I miss. Do you find now that you're, well, I just want to go back to what you said about sort of living in a solipsistic kind of universe uh, which by the way is the opposite of my tendency and, and even if it wasn't yeah. I'd have to get out because of what I do for a living um, see a lot of people but you talked in one of your columns it was probably the the other one of all of them um, that's most stood out to me and resonated longer term which was about somebody wrote in who was about my age saying I feel quite happy I've got a nice job friends I'm in my 50s I think I'm probably happy single does it matter kind of thing and you you talked yeah. about having a witness to your life which also had yeah. quite a profound effect on me and I'd love to yeah. hear you talk more about that 
Yeah, you know, if a tree falls over in the forest and nobody's there to watch it, does it make a sound? Um, yeah, we need a witness. I think we, I mean, your friends can be your witnesses. But, you know, with friends, you can talk about, you know, um, stuff like what you want to do with your life, what's interesting at the moment. But with a partner, you can talk about, really mundane things that you kind of somehow want to witness for like should we go from semi-skim to whole milk you know no one else cares no one else can care about that but a partner you're you're sort of closer than you are with um just friends usually and it's it's a sort of closeness and i i do think witness does cover it up no one knows you quite as well as the person that you share your life with I mean we share bits of our lives with our lives with friends but with a partner you I haven't actually ever put this into words before I'm trying to work it out what, what I mean by witness but a partner does know when you've got a cold and it's quite nice to be seen when you've got a cold or when you're really happy about something that happened uh, or, you know, just how's your day been becomes quite an important question as well. And I think it's a privilege to know the ins and outs of someone's life really intimately. I know my friends' lives, I do, but not as well as I know my partner's life. Yeah, as you and say, I feel I... like... Well, I think I think I'm getting there now. I think what it is is that we're like if you think of the Venn diagram, if, if he's one part of the Venn diagram, I'm the other bit. There's this overlap bit, the bit that's like truly where we truly witness each other, and that witnessing means that he becomes a part of me and I become a part of him. And so, were he to die, I would feel that I had lost a part of myself. And the bit that I had lost would be the bits that only he witnessed. They'd have nowhere to land, nowhere to go. Now, if you're not in a partnership, I guess that you get those bits witnessed by other people and it's fine. You know, you get them witnessed, say, by your children who also know an awful lot about you. And you get them witnessed by your best girlfriends. And, and you know, when a friend does die, we do feel like that part of us that only they could see has died too. But it's not such a big part as it is if when a partner goes or dies. I think that's what it is. It's like they become a part of you and that when they go, that part of you is unseen. What's what's going to happen to it? What's holding it up? As you say that I have tears in my eyes as you say that because that is exactly the thing. We, we talk about how bad... Um, bad you know uh, sort of electronics are on phones and social media but one of the things I most love when I'm in a relationship are those little tiny silly texts during the day where you literally have mm. someone to tell that thing that means almost nothing but just a yeah. quick one sentence and uh, I know one of a couple of my closest girlfriends are single um, parents like me and a friend of mine just lost her mum and she hasn't been in a long-term relationship in many years, but has raised two children on her own. And she said one of the things she realised when her mum died was that her mum had been the witness to her life. Mm. And once her mum 
has now her mum has gone, she is enormously missing that and feeling mm. the burden of being single in a way she didn't when her mum was there. So yeah. I guess she and my parents very much are the witnesses to my life, never more so actually than they since are. I've been yeah, they doing are this. your significant yeah. others. Yes. I yes. like that word significant other because yes. it means it doesn't have to be a partner, it can be a parent or a or a child or a, a good friend can be your significant other, the person that witnesses parts of you that other people don't see and accepts them there is something again this is personal I wouldn't say everybody should feel like this or needs to have this but there is something in my map of the world that means that having that one significant other who is a partner is enormously precious and um is something that to, to date you know I have well I haven't had for a long time and I think that's why the loss is so enormous when you miss a person you know mm. you, when when you lose somebody in a in a breakup it does it, it's it's it is the sort of cycle of grief isn't it you're you're losing mm. something enormously yeah. significant which is why it's described yeah. as a significant other Mind you, if that significant other, when they witnessed you, put kind of a toxic twist on it, it's quite good to get rid of them. If yeah, they, but then, you know, yes, absolutely. If they didn't yeah. accept, you know, the whole of who you are and, uh, you know, or thought a part of you that wasn't was fake or something like that, even though you might miss them, you might be better in the long run without without a sort of like, a lens on you that doesn't make you feel great. No, that's very true. Nothing more lonely than lying in a bed with someone you wish you weren't in a bed with. I would far rather be in the bed with a nice cup of herbal tea, Radio 4 on and the cat on my knee. That's no doubt. Yeah, well, cats are great. Cats are great. Dogs, are you more of a cat than a dog person? Um, well, I like both, but I couldn't live with a dog. I uh, live with a cat. You've got Kevin the cat. Yep, Kevin the cat. I don't know where he is today. He's not made an appearance. He's probably my brother's out. got Kevin the dog. So, uh, oh, yeah, great. My do my dog's called Jeff. I think we've all picked sound human names for our for our animals. Do you with the um? You've obviously been in a thirty year marriage. It's thirty years last year. Is that right? I think it might be. 35 oh is it 35 doesn't but, seem that long and you because because your book um is is your next book we'll talk about your your book uh, that you know yeah your bible book that I live by and so many do but your um is the next book going to be about marriage because I think we'd all like to know how to keep a decades-long marriage alive I don't know what my next book's called yet but it's called cool, but the the, the 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 four parts of it are going to be I've got to concentrate now are going to be how we love or connect, haven't decided which yet, how we argue or manage difference, uh, how we change and how we find contentment. So I've just got those four things that I'm going to um, just talk around. And that will be in one book because you could easily do four books. Well, I'm just going to do the one actually at this point with that. And do you, your book, I actually didn't read your, well, your book didn't exist when my kids were little. And the title, the full title of your book, which loads of people listening will already know, is the book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad you have. I think it should have that another title. That you did. That you did, sorry, that you yeah. did. The book you yeah. wish your parents had read and your children will be glad you did. That um, you did. That you did, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty tough. I'm going to say it again. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. 
Yay! Hello, podcast penance. It's producer Mike here. Just to say, well done, Callie. You got there in the end. And I wish it had another title, the book you wish you had read when your children were younger, because I read it with adult children. And the reason I keep passionately recommending it to people is I read the book that I know you talk about um, in it and you've talked about a lot, um, how to talk uh, so kids will listen and listen Listen, so kids will talk. talk. Um, I'll I'll let you say that title because I butchered it. How to, oh, how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. And that book did exist when I had young children. And apart from the American speak, I did love it. Um, yeah. And it was, that was definitely a bit of a revelation, particularly with a kid who's, who's autistic, because yeah. listening becomes such a topic from both sides. We yeah. always think it's the, um, the, the kids on the spectrum who have trouble with listening, but actually often it's us learning to listen differently yeah. and stop being so neurotypical about yeah. listening. Namaste, motherfuckers. So your book is just a fabulous study of humanity as much as how we communicate with children. H- how do you describe it? Anyone who hasn't read it, what's the kind of description that would best explain it? Um, it's a book about how to have a good relationship with your baby, your infant, your child, your adolescent, your teenager, your grown-up child, um, because the relationship that you have with your child is a bit like their anchor, their home. And for all for them to feel confident and uh, trusting of the world, they need a good, safe home. They need a good, safe relationship. It's not full of tips and tricks. The tips and tricks type book is the sort of book that you have a doer and a done to. So the parent becomes the doer. How can I make you sleep? And the child becomes the done to. And that makes for um, a relationship that isn't particularly healthy. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of doer and done to. Children are not chores to get through. They're people to have a relationship with. I always say that, um, you know, if you have coffee with a friend, you don't come away afterwards going, I nailed that coffee. I really, you know, worked that. You just think, oh, that was nice or whatever. And I, I want parents and children to have give and take relationships, not doer and done to relationships and good relationships that a child can embody and feel good about themselves as they're growing up. It's not about giving a kid everything they want, which people tend to think that that's what kindness means. But it means setting your children need love plus boundaries, but it means setting your boundaries in a way that is not pretending anything. It's not pretending it's about the kid when it's about you. So when you want to leave the park, it's like, we're going to leave in five minutes because I'm cold and I'm hungry. Not, we're going to leave in five minutes because you've had enough. And I think it's really important to reveal a bit more about yourself to your children so that they get to know where your limits are. So they get to know if you get, if you were to get, 
more tired and more hungry than you could bear as as a grown up, um, you'll get a bit short and snappy. And it, I don't think they should experience the short snappiness too much. You should put the boundary down before you get to your limit. I mean, there's so, such a lot in the book. It's basically about a relationship. But now I'm going off on tangents like how to set boundaries and stuff. But it's about, you know, having a good relationship with your children. And you can use the book for all your relationships, I hope. Like if if you learn to listen to your child properly, then maybe you'll learn to listen to your employees or your boss or, or your friends a bit better too. There's so much in it to unpack, not just as a as a parent of children, absolutely. And I love very early on in the book, you talk about single parents and disabuse your readers of the notions that we sometimes hear about what a disadvantage it is to be brought up by a single parent. You, there's some lovely stuff in there that is very reassuring. And certainly I found helped with those assumptions about what it's it means research to be back single. i'm yes. not kind yeah it's just research back <laughs> well it was kind of you to put it in <laughs> okay it's like it's yeah it's not the how a family is made up that makes a difference to a child it's like how safe it feels for the child and is there a, a lot of the reason it, it's much easier isn't it let alone how we communicate with our children to not really feel or name the things we're feeling because those can be quite frightening. And until we can name them to ourselves and know I'm feeling cold and hungry and yeah. it's nothing to do with the child, yeah. it would be really hard to let that part of ourselves be seen and then risk how the child would respond. So I guess there's a lot of work involved, isn't there, in actually, yeah. first of all, going, well, I do feel shit and ratty today, and that's probably not the best recipe for being patient with a two-year-old. Yeah. What am I going to do with that as a starting point, rather you're than I better your, just dust myself you're down? You're going to put your boundary way above your limit so you don't get to that shouty bit, hopefully. And is it that that idea of um, the idea of being seen? You talked. Um, I heard you talk about diaphobia, fear of dialogue, and that yeah. again was quite a profound thought for me. So, so what is that, and what impact does that have in in a in a relationship with another human? Diaphobia is a term that I first heard used by R. D. Lang, who was a kind of eccentric um, uh, doctor. Uh, psychiatrist, therapist guy. Um, and he called it diaphobia, fear of dialogue. And what that means, if we um, are having a good relationship with someone, there's mutual impact. You impact me, I impact you. You influence me, I influence you. There's sort of like a sort of to and fro going on. And when you have children, you will be changed by them because they will see the world differently to you do. So you have something to learn from your children. And yet some people are sort of terrified of being influenced by another. They've sort of got a wall around them. They don't want to be impacted. They don't want to be influenced. They want to see the world how they see it. And they want to cling to that rigidly. I'm a bit like that. And it makes you bat other people away. It makes you bat your children away. Um, so it's really important to be not rigid, but a little bit more flexible so that you can feel 
other people's influence so you can respond to it and so you can be changed by it. We should be impacting and changing each other, which I realise you have to trust someone a lot to let them in like that. Um, and of course, there are it's not without risks, but the risk of never letting anybody in, the risk of never being influenced by someone else is means that you're not good company for someone else. So that means you wouldn't be good company for your children, which means if they come to see you, it will be out of duty, you know, when they're adult, rather than because they really want to see you. And I must say, it's been the biggest privilege of my life to look at the world, not only through my eyes, but through the eyes of other people, through the eyes of my clients, through the eyes of my daughter. It's It, it's, it expands your mind when you see other people's and feel other people's viewpoints. I mean, you must know that from your son, you know, when you've got a 26 year old son and they say, I see it like this. And you think, oh, what, that is another way of looking at it. It's like, ooh. You talk about it. And again, this is such a reassuring thing. I remember hearing about this in therapy with family therapy when my son had his diagnosis. And it wasn't about the conflict. It was about how you reunite after the conflict. Yeah. But you describe it as it's not the rupture that matters, but the repair, which yeah. I think everybody breathes a sigh of relief when they hear yeah, that. Because that is the nature of all relationships. We misunderstand each other, um, miscalculate what somebody else's motives was. We do it all the time. And uh, just saying my bad is... Uh, which is something I learned from my daughter, saying, my bad. I love that phrase. Yeah, it's um, we learn a lot from our kids, for sure. Yeah, it's it's just so great. And I have made the decision that I was going to do that from the off, like when I was, um, you know, grumpy and it wasn't her fault, but I took it out on her like all parents do from time to time, or at least I did. Um, and uh, when she was about four, she uh, she said to me, Oh, sorry, I was grumpy in the car, Mum. I was really hungry. I'm all right now. And I thought, I can't even remember her being grumpy in the car. And I just thought, she's doing what I've done. Job Children done. do what you do to them. So if you're kind, considerate, you get it right back. I mean, it might take a few years, but you get it right back. Yeah, don't hold the your other, breath, the other parents one, of two-year-olds. <laughs> the other one I was really pleased about that I did was, like, when she was about 18 months, she was a real pain because she used to open the dishwasher and take all the clean stuff out and spread it all over the floor and then play dollies with it. And it was sort of like, oh. Anyway, I just let her get on with it. Um, you know, I didn't put a boundary down over that because I thought getting interested in dishwashers, that's not so bad. And then when she's like six or eight, she just emptied the dishwasher without thinking about it because she's associated the dishwasher with play and love. So instead of the dishwasher being associated with chore and pressure, it's like a lovely, beautiful thing to play with. And it still is. It's also a great example of the sort of thing that as a busy working parent, that's happening. You're like, for Christ's sake. But actually now we look back at it with adult kids and we think, what wouldn't I give to have that moment with the sun streaming into the kitchen and my kid on the floor unloading the dishwasher and playing dollies? Wouldn't well, it be lovely? The cupboards as well. Empty all the kitchen cut. She loved the kitchen cupboards. Oh, plates, 
But it's the heart of the Wizards, home, the kitchen. You know. She was right in the heart of it, pulling yeah. things apart and asking questions. Mine used to unpack my suitcases. They both did. I used to travel a lot for work when they were little and they would always, the suitcase would come out and they would always unpack it when I'd left like toddling age and what yeah. my son would get in it and I remember I, I I always used to have to leave um anything that was small and sort of shouldn't really be played with or bits of makeup and stuff I'd always leave them yeah. high up out of the way until the last minute until yeah. I abs- forgot the whole bloody lot one time I literally <laughs> went with nothing with nothing because my son had tried to pack himself in the suitcase I guess we don't need Freud to unpack that but do you um <laughs> in terms of your own relationship with Flo because you weren't a psychotherapist when you had her you were an you were an artist right when you had flow or did you or uh, were was, you a psychotherapist uh, and then became I was a trainee around. psychotherapist okay yeah yeah I started I started training when she was no when I first had her no I wasn't a psychotherapist but I was a Samaritan I was you know I was, that's one hell of a gig that was I was steeped in it yeah yeah it's the letting go because when you have a child um whatever whether you're the the mother or the father or, or whoever has a, a, a new child in their life it eclipses your brain and soul and body in a way you can't quite conceive of until you've had the child. And I can't imagine how you do that as well as holding what you hold for people in therapy or people you speak to in Samaritans. That's a lot to accommodate. What, holding your child and holding... And the the baggage of all the other people that you're dealing with and helping. You know, the great thing about... um, being a therapist is that the session, sessions are 50 minutes long and that makes it a lot easier because you know where the boundary is it's that 50 minutes to have the most enormous stuff put on you um because you know it's not going on forever whereas with a kid you haven't got your 50 minutes is up darling yeah that would be a lot so, easier on those car journeys with my son to investigate great apes if I said right you've had your 50 minutes now we're putting some music on I've actually <laughs> done that with a friend I've got this really intense friend and uh I was on bank Warrington Banky station and so was he hello he says <laughs> I think oh <laughs> and he sort of I don't know he talked at me about some engineering problem he was having for, I'd say, one and a half hours. And I just thought, I can't take it anymore. And I said, name, you've spoken a lot about this. There's something I want to talk about now. And he was fine with it. Oh, he was I love it. fine with it. Also, you could have you built the bloody bridge down. in 90 minutes, whatever he was trying to solve. He should have just gone off and solved it, stopped banging on about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. It was quite interesting for about half an hour, but, you know. You're from what you grew up. Did you grow up in Warrington? Yeah, yeah, and and you're because I know you grew up with 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 nannies and boarding school and and though all that that um, gives us that lovely thing to unpack for the rest of our time on this mortal yeah, coil. Yeah, great. Yeah. So you've done things extremely differently with flow. And what what do you most value for people listening to this who are in the heart of the younger parenting years, which lots of listeners to the podcast are, how would you characterize what you most treasure about your relationship with your adult child now? Um, That we can say anything to each other. Um, That we're casual. Um, that we've got the keys to each other's houses. Um, uh, what do I treasure about? I, it, she's just so part of me. 
you know, the Venn diagram. Not that she hasn't separated, she has. But um, what do I treasure about it? Just having her in my life as a presence. Another Just, witness to your life and you to hers. Yeah, definitely. I've really enjoyed being a witness to her life. I love hearing all about all her friends and the dramas all her friends have. I go, you know, I like the gossip. I love it. I, it's, yeah, I'm quite gossipy with her, actually. Me too, with my, particularly with my daughter. My son's more straight down the line, less of a gossip. I, yeah. That's one of the things I most missed. I think people go on about teenagers and generalise about teenagers enormously and underestimate them. And one of the things I most loved were the years when there were always groups of teenagers at the kitchen table. Oh, and I love that. I love that too. And the stuff you hear and the way they are. And I just thought, what an amazing generation of people. I just missed it massively I when they left. I loved it. Um, once we told uh, Flo that we were going away for the weekend, I think she was about 15 or 16, you know, quite old enough to stay at home on her own. And uh, she went, oh, fine. But unfortunately, on Friday night when we were going to go away, we had too many drinks, so we couldn't drive. So we came back and we been out very very late and we came back and the, the house was all dark and everything I didn't know who was in the house so we went to bed woke up in the morning with a terrible hangover sort of like stumbled down to the kitchen we we're both sort of sitting there like this and this man comes into the kitchen and goes you two don't look very clever he says you don't look good what you need is a fry up I started making bacon and eggs and tomatoes and stuff in in uh, in my own kitchen I thought this is rather good <laughs> <laughs> what amazed me about it is that he knew where everything was he'd obviously been there a lot and um and uh he said oh shall i squeeze you some oranges he knew how the juicer worked everything well, whoever that person amazing. is they sound like a keeper oh absolutely amazing <laughs> um well I, th I think uh he's gay and my daughter's gay so nothing it was ever going to go if on there's one thing that, that isn't going to work that that is that is a venn diagram <laughs> that will never overlap apart from his very very close friends and well you... I, I thought it was great i mean that's that's the sort of thing that i miss is like a strange man in my kitchen i, I very much miss that now me that too although i can still time. have it sometimes in a way that grayson might not appreciate it if you did so <laughs> And do you, we haven't even talked about your art. I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody. But did you, I mean, you know, Grayson, Grayson's Art Club was, uh, well, you know, and well, art club, as I always think of it, is that, God, that was a gift from lockdown. There weren't many ups. And I think I speak for most of us uh, who watched it. That was a bloody tonic. Uh, and talk about just feeling like there was a community when we'd all got stuck into our weird, scary, dark worlds. You know did what it, I thought was good? great about that was the members of the public and what they sent in and all their stories and then pretty much quite early on we realized that it was the stories mm. that were so touching and the and the art just illustrated the stories it was just so wonderful because we we it was such a great way to get to know some people quite fast and I just felt that we weren't meeting enough people in in lockdown because we were all locked up so you know we got to meet these people via zoom and the tv and it was really cute they were cute and, and we got to meet them too because of you and then of course we all got inspired to sort of do our own stories uh, in paint or clay or something yeah did it surprise you? I mean, you're, you're no stranger to the media. You're a very well-known face and, crucially, also voice. 
and a great guiding light to loads of us for, for you know for a few decades. I mean, I loved Couch Potato, your graphic novel, which I know your daughter did couch the most. Fiction. Couch fiction. Couch fiction. Ter- couch fiction. I'm terrible, aren't I? Couch Potato. It was sort of a play on the words yes. of Pulp Fiction. Let's do so it again. It's like pulp I- Fiction with more sitting down. Can I just um, tell you, I am the living embodiment of menopause at the moment. I literally, I'm normally right. so good with titles. I think you're doing really words. well. Ter- I mean, really in the thick of it to the point that I sit on the floor crying about it most days because I'm normally so sharp and I have lost the sharpness at the moment. So my apologies that I've called all your books I'm the wrong titles. I'm sorry you're feeling not sharp. You seem pretty sharp to me. Oh, thank you. But couch I feel, fiction. I feel like cotton wool, if that's any help. <laughs> well, you don't look like it. I think we look sharp and we're going to make, um, we've made a good fist of this. But um, yeah. but your, so couch fiction, um, your graphic novel and Flo did the illustrations for the most recent iteration, which is a fantastic, yeah. talk about a lovely, and that's always going to be out there in the world, that wonderful yeah, thing lovely. that you and your daughter yeah. created. Yeah. Well, I hope it will. Things do tend to go out of print, but... Um, yeah couch fiction um what was so wonderful about working with Flo is that she's so been around conversations about psychotherapy you know whether she's playing with dolls under the table when I'm talking to colleagues or whatever it is that she never hardly had to ask me anything about how should I do this or how should I do that and um and when I got it back I said yeah this is perfect there's nothing I want to change I changed about three panels you know, rather than all of them, which was, it was just great. Well, that's a testament to the Venn diagram, that the overlap was such that that could be created from within it. Did it, um, talking about Venn diagrams, obviously you and Grayson have a very um, robust, long-standing Venn diagram that you've created over those decades. Um, Did it, and you were so taken into the hearts of everybody on Art Club. How is that? Because you two, you've both got really clear public personas you're both very identifiable in terms of what you stand for what you believe what you do and what you're capable of how is it when you've got usually you have one sort of shining light in the household in terms of public facing but you're both wait I mean it's only because I got jealous of him (laughs) that I decided to try and get a public profile Good. So you what thought, I'm going to be a national treasure too, Grayson. Yeah, Just watch me go. Right. <laughs> it was uh, it was my narcissistic injury that flared up. <laughs> so I had to uh, do something in the public eye, which is why I wrote Catch Fiction, actually, which was I've, the first edition uh, went out when I 15 years ago when I was 50. And Grayson was very famous. And I was I was fed up of uh, getting uh, things addressed to plus one. Sort of Grayson plus one to a party, and I thought I have my name is not plus one, you know. So I thought, well, I'd better do something. So I thought, well, I do this psychotherapy in my in my little office all day long, and nobody sees how brilliant I am. So I, I'll write about that. And then when I tried to write about it really honestly, and I did it as a as a comic because I just love reading comics, so that seemed like a good medium for me. Um, I realised actually I made mistakes quite a lot of the time when I looked at my work quite honestly. It was quite a good exercise, you know, quite a good bit of self-supervision for me to to write the book because I realised, oh, yeah, I always make this mistake at this point and uh, I always get this wrong. And it sort of showed how therapy can work, even if it's not perfect, because it never is perfect. Therapy isn't perfect. 
it's 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 all about rupture and repair, attunement, misattunement. And um, that's what I wanted to show in that book. But I only wrote it because I uh, wanted some attention. And I got it and it was great. It was like a calling card because um, people like the book and then they say, oh, would you write this for us or would you do this? And I sort of thought, yeah, I would. And I started to enjoy writing a lot. So after that book, I got a job on Psychologist magazine. Then I got a job at Red magazine. I had an intermittent column at The Guardian. I wrote another book called How to Stay Sane, which had far fewer illustrations in it, uh, which I, I stand by that book. I think it's really good, How to Stay Sane. If you want to know how to stay sane, please go out, buy it and read it. We'll put links um, to all of this in the show notes. <laughs> and... Um, so I started to feel less injured and I got less plus one and more. Oh, can Philippa come too? And then I started to get Philippa Perry plus one. I was going to say that's when that. you know so it's was good. Yeah. Thought, oh, that's good. But so I'm really grateful to my husband because I'm inherently lazy and I probably wouldn't have pushed myself. But because he pushes himself so much and I don't want to get left behind. I pushed myself. So he was the the inspiration for me doing work in public, as it were. And I just love my present job at The Observer such a lot. It's just what I was made for, I think. Good, and because you must never it. retire from that job. You, me and my girlfriends won't forgive you if you ever stop well, writing. Well, I might, I might get too tongue-tied to remember what words I'm supposed to put down. But, yeah. Um I could have done that job and done it really well when I was 50, you know, when I was at the height of my psychotherapy powers or whatever. But nobody knew me, so I wouldn't get offered that job. I, could, I couldn't get that job. So to get the job, I had to do everything else. And now I'm really pleased that I've got it. We're so, all very pleased you've got it. Trust me. So what's it like being married to, this is what you asked me, um, you know, um, somebody that achieves so much really fun actually really good very stimulating well actually I was more interested in what it's like for him to be married to you <laughs> because I think that's a oh, really he's just incredibly lucky to <laughs> he's be bloody to lucky I <laughs> am such a good cook as well god he's lucky oh my agent just said to me they're thinking about you for the next series of can't cook won't cook Callie and I said and she said you're great for that because you can't cook I said yes and I won't cook so I'm I'm the opposite of you in that regard but it must have been it's healed your narcissistic injury um finding a way to have yeah. a platform and a voice but but it must have been quite a shift because that happened halfway through a marriage where he'd been the one with the profile and yeah. and suddenly you and you were yeah. so loved in art club. I mean, you you got a hell of a lot of the column inches about art club. Yeah, Not that I everyone do doesn't I love do him love, still. I do love showing off. I do love showing off. So um, it would. I think I'd always been told not to show off, but then I saw Grayson showing off, and it seemed to be working for him. So I thought, yeah, I'll show off too. So that's what I've done. It's, well, I'm glad that people are asking what it's like to be married to you rather than what it's like to be married to Grayson, because you Well, are, you'll have to ask yeah. him what it's like to be married to me. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think he's quite fond of it. I think he quite likes it. He seems to have sticked it for quite the duration, and I dare say many more years to come. And Well, let's hope so. We're quite <laughs> old now. <laughs> Not that. 65 is, um, you, you're probably two thirds through, I reckon. 
Yeah, hopefully I've got a bit longer. I love what's life, so don't want to go um, yet. What's the gene pool like? How, how long did your parents stick oh, around? Well, um, on my father's side, hundreds. On my mother's side, 80s. Mm. So, so who, even 80s who, who knows bad. which ones I've got? Yeah, Mine all live on both sides, all of them, till pretty much into the three digits or nudging three digits. But yeah. that sometimes makes me a bit complacent. I keep thinking, oh, I'm halfway through. And then I think I've got no bloody idea if I'm halfway through. Maybe not. But let's hope. I was going to say God willing, but um, that's that's not a presence I massively believe in. But universe willing, we'll be here for a long time to come. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Philippa, out of your incredible life to date as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Well, yeah, I'm not very much of a drama queen. I don't have these. I tend to have a sort of gentle curve, me, rather than a wow. Um, uh, I think if I had to choose one, it would be when I was in therapy and I was about, I was about, um, how old was I? Nearly 50, getting up to 50. And my analyst said to me, um, there are two types of therapists, he said. They're the ones that go to workshops all the time and take notes. And the ones that give workshops and write books. And you, young lady, he said, because you're a little bit misogynist, you, young lady, are in the wrong group, he said. You need to stop going to all these continuing professional developed things and start running them. And I thought, because I really trusted him. So, you know, when other people say, oh, you're good, you just think, no, I'm not. They don't know the real me. But after a few years, he really did know the real me. So I really took that in. And then I, I, gave, a, uh, I gave a workshop on PDSD and dissociation. <laughs> I never looked back. <laughs> sort of like, you know, start that sort of started me having a public profile I suppose amongst psychotherapists at least um so yeah that was a kick up the arse a bit like Joan Rivers saying to you do stand up he gave me a kick up the arse and said you can stop learning and start teaching now I thought oh okay and yeah that was that was quite big well I think we're all pretty glad that moment happened so is he still around that that person yeah he is moaning a lot <laughs> I don't see him uh, as a client anymore. Um, uh, if I bump into him, he's, he's usually going, "Oh, me back! Oh, it's got, I can't give up work yet because I haven't got enough money." Yeah, moaning a lot. <laughs> he likes moaning. It's fine. You're a magnet for men talking about engineering and their backs, so that's um, a dubious, <laughs> a dubious life skill. So, so lucky, <laughs> blessed. And what is your favourite joke? Oh, shit. Oh, I've got to have a favourite joke. I don't really do jokes because that requires memory. I can remember my first joke, but it's not funny. Go for why it. Do, why do birds fly south? Because it's too far to walk. I love it. There you go. I there think you... it's in my book of riddles when I was five. See, unprepared, the best things come from that. You might have sat there for ages trying to remember a shaggy dog story and I'd have been forced to laugh. Instead, you just landed one. Yeah, there we go. It's, I, I cannot remember jokes. 
I can I don't only... think it's one you're going to be using in your set. It'll be yes, it, it'll definitely be one we use in the Christmas cracker episode. Oddly, the only time I can remember anything is on stage, and I've got an incredible memory for. I, I never have written notes for sets. I've never got up and forgotten what I'm saying. I can do hour long keynote speeches Brilliant. without wavering. But try and can get you give me, me to... a joke. Can you give me a joke? Because I do like a joke. Okay, here's one. Uh, here's one I like. This isn't one of mine, actually. This is Dimitri Martin, but I love this one. Uh, so I checked into a hotel and um, at the desk, they said, would you like a wake up call? And I said, yes, please. I'd like a wake up call. Uh, next morning, the phone rang by my bed and the voice at the other end said, what the hell are you doing with your life? <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's great. I wish they did say that when they gave you a wake-up call. Definitely. I've Especially had a few. Especially sort of like you, <laughs> you're going to record some, I don't know, insignificant bit of rubbish for the culture show or something. You've got up at six o'clock to do it. And like, why? Why am I doing it? <laughs> and what would you give as your bit of life advice to anybody listening? Accept yourself exactly where you are. You are good enough exactly how you are and where you are and who you are is a loving and powerful human being who is learning and growing every step of the way. And that's not mine. That's Susan Jeffers, the queen of self-help, who wrote uh, uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. That was Philippa Perry. We've put links to Philippa's books and all her other good stuff in the show notes. And also, as I mentioned in the intro, don't like to go on about it, uh, the review I got in The Observer. And do please, if you can be asked, go in and give us uh, a review, some stars, ideally five of the shiny little fuckers. That's amazing. It really, really does help us with all the things we're doing with the podcast. We're so excited about what we've got in store for the rest of 2023. All thanks to you. So that's it for this week thanks for listening as always and we will be back in your feed next thursday when i will be talking to the reverend richard coles you'd love a wrenching gear change when i went from a flat top to having a bit more body in my hair just went straight for it and uh, startled everybody Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, Motherfuckers. Motherfuckers.